Good morning, church. It's good to be with you today. I was uh, privileged to be able to be in the historic sanctuary this morning for our early service and now by uh, Mr. Russell Vineyard's uh, kind invitation to be here with you all. Thank you so much for that, Russell. And Claire was so kind in her introduction. I think I've been introduced better one time. That was by my mother. She used more flowering language than, than Claire did, but uh, I don't know that I can live up to the promise that Claire uh, said that um, I would live up to, but um, thank you for those kind words. I said, that's a great act of faith, Claire, to introduce me that way. Uh, but thank you uh, very much. And it's been a privilege to be able to work um, on, I guess, one occasion so far with your pastor search committee. Uh, I've met with a couple of other teams in your church ministry. And then today, if you saw somebody strange peering in your Sunday school class uh, window, that was me. And uh, my family is here with me worshiping, Wendy on the front row, Liam, and then John. Our daughter is off at college and not with us. Her name is Anna Grace, but we're uh, grateful to be able uh, to worship with you today. Um, I'm going to try to do uh, something unusual. I'm a pastor at heart, so when I'm with God's people, it's Sunday morning, and I'm behind a pulpit for 30 years. I've just said, take your Bible and turn, and preached uh, from there. So let me do that. Take your Bible, turn with me to the Great Commission, Matthew's account of the Great Commission. That'll be in Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to preach a couple of sermons before I get to that passage, so uh, hang on to that, and um, it'll get... Get, we'll get there eventually, I promise you. Um, let, let me also say, it was so nice to get a note from Pastor Ken. Uh, are you enjoying having him as your transitional pastor? Yeah, what a wonderful, wonderful uh, person he is. He sent me a kind text uh, just encouraging me this morning, and I know he encourages you. I also enjoyed uh, listening this week to Pastor Jimmy Patterson. I, I saw him in the balcony a little earlier and I said, boy, your message called the founder that comes up online when you search your name is, I said, they ought to teach that at a seminary preaching class. Man, that was just a beautifully packaged message. And I went and looked up uh, Ray Kroc and the McDonald's story and the movie filmed here in uh, downtown Noonan and quite a lot of history. And here you are at the center of it all. Um, but isn't it our goal to make Jesus be the one at the center of it all? Yeah, that, that's really what it's all about. You know, the Bible says, seek not great things for yourself. As a young, ambitious person, that was a real challenging passage for me. Seek not great things for yourself. But then he goes on to admonish us to seek great things for the Lord. Um, one of my favorite little stories that presses a point, especially related to the Great Commission that we're going to turn to this morning um, is the story about the, the man who lives in a particular neighborhood and all by himself he's convinced his wife and his family that he can move the refrigerator out of the house in order to put a new refrigerator in. And so before he buys the new refrigerator that day, he says, well, I'll go ahead and get this refrigerator out of here. So he shuffles it across the tile floor and he gets it to the door and it's kind of getting stuck in the door and he wrestles on one side and can't get it. He goes around to the other side and he's in the garage and he's wrestling it on that side. And all of a sudden, one of his kind neighbors walks by and says, what, do you, what, what can I do? What can I do? And he said, help me with this refrigerator. 
And so the neighbor ponies up, and they get in there, and one gets on one side, one gets on the other, and they wrestle and strive and make all the efforts they can. And finally, finally, the neighbor that owns the house goes, well, wait, let's just take a break. And, and they're both out of breath, and they get out in the garage and look at that refrigerator stuck in the door, and the man says, the neighbor says, I don't think we'll ever get that refrigerator out of this house. And the other neighbor's kind of taken back. He goes, out? I thought we were trying to get it in. <laughs> you know, sometimes church can be a little bit like that. What are we trying to do? Why are we doing what we do? Why do we do the things we do? Now, on a little bit of a grander scale, I want you to understand that this happens often. Um, when I was uh, off at seminary, just beginning, I was remembering hearing a story uh, because I was out in Fort Worth, Texas, where a number of the people of our church worked for Lockheed Martin, and there was a, a big hullabaloo about um, the loss of the Mars orbiter. Do you remember that? It was about 1998 when the Mars orbiter, $125 million that the United States government spent on it, NASA was overseeing it, and the goal was to put it into orbit and to look for life on Mars and to discover things about its atmosphere and this sort of thing. And it flew to the atmosphere for about a year to cover the distance between Earth and Mars. And when it got there, everyone was really excited, and they were anticipating a great day of celebration. And that great day of celebration would culminate with all this information coming back and all these insights and this great sense of success of orbiting Mars and learning about one of the planets in the universe. And there was just this great thrill of anticipation in that day. But between the communications center of NASA, which was outside of Denver, Colorado, and the Lockheed Martin headquarters in California, there was this interaction that all of a sudden died instantly. Everything went silent. No information was coming back. It was as if the orbiter had been lost because it had been lost. They had an investigation into what exactly was it that happened, and here's what the conclusion was. NASA was measuring in centimeters, and Lockheed Martin was measuring in inches. You know, it, it may not be a big difference, but when you're going to Mars and you're calculating scientific data, it makes a big difference. It was interesting, the conclusion was said to be a miscalculation uh, caused by miscommunication, and eventually the error was pointed to the American people for their conversion lag from the English system to the metric system. So you were blamed for something you didn't even know you were at fault for. Welcome to church today, right? A conversion lag, a miscalculation, a missed mission. 
things not going as we perhaps thought they could or they should, can I point you to a bigger mission, to an even greater mission, to a longer lasting mission, to a more important mission? It's the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem men and women and boys and girls across all of the ages and from all around the world where the Bible says one day God's great vision of salvation will be accomplished, where people from every tribe and language and people group will be gathered around the throne and we will enjoy him and worship him forever. We will serve and work in his kingdom where there is no frustration, no futility, and no end. That's quite a vision that we're invited into. But today, the church, perhaps like few other times in its history, certainly here in its history in the Western world, is wrestling with its calculations and its communications and its unity. As a matter of fact, the Pew Research in this last year came out and said that Christianity in the Western world is declining faster now than at any recorded point in history. And we recognize the challenges of that. And churches all over our country are calculating and communicating and trying to figure out what's going on, why are these things happening, and what should we do about it, if anything. And so many churches are, of course, finding themselves doing this and doing that, but wondering, are we doing the main thing? Because oftentimes they are finding themselves distracted. There are many individual church members who are disgruntled. Many of them are now former church members because they don't see the things that they're investing in as being things that are meaningful or lasting or of importance. And of course, there are many current church members that feel disenfranchised. Perhaps even going through the motions, but having lost the heart and the passion and the joy for what it is that they're doing. Now, what does it mean to get it right? What does it take to get it right? Well, within our ministry, we recognize that the first and most important thing is to discover what it is that God has actually called us to do and then compare that to what we're actually doing. Now, instead of uh, giving you half-completed discoveries, which I think would be foolish and ill-advised today, your team is working hard and in a very diligent and disciplined way to assess and address and ask, and perhaps many of you have already been asked by them your thoughts and your perspective on the various things that they have put their hand to. Instead, this morning as we open the Bible, maybe the most important thing to look at is to discover what God has given the church to help provide us the direction and unity that we need to accomplish the mission that he has assigned. Now, I can't talk about all of that today because libraries and volumes of books could be written about uh, that subject in and of itself. But what we can do is maybe see the vast nature of the picture and then pull out this one portion, the first portion, if you will, maybe the most important portion, if you will, and maybe the thing that the church has to get right most often in order for the church to remain on God's mission. Let me mention what those four things are. It's the mission, it's the values, it's the strategy, and it's the vision. 
Now, a lot of people, when they hear that, will think historically about what the church has been tinkering with for the last 50 years as a part of the church growth movement. And I would say to you, certainly, that the church growth movement gave us much of that language, but they did it under this pretense. They did it under the pretense of describing for us how the business world does it better and more effectively and more efficiently. And many pastors have stood where I'm standing today and recognized the need and the complexity and the challenge of leading broad diverse groups of people, and therefore, how do we do it? And they look at the business world, and the business world does it very, very well, and so many of them began to bring it into the church ministry, oftentimes under the guise of something else. But what they missed is that you don't have to borrow it from the business world. As a matter of fact, if anybody did the borrowing, it was a long time ago, the business world that borrowed from the Bible as God eternally described it. Let me see if I can tell you this big picture for just a moment. We're going to look at the mission from one of the particular passages of Scripture in the Matthew 28 passage. But let me also say to you that when it comes to describing the values of the church, the Bible is very clear about those as well. If you want to do a great little exercise, take your Bible, go to Acts chapter 2, begin in verse 42 through 47. Don't, don't do it now, maybe do it this afternoon, and, and read the values of the church. It'll say things like, we value worship and ministry and evangelism and discipleship and stewardship and prayer and generosity and all these other things. But it's not the only time that that's described in the Scripture. Seven times in the book of Acts. Now, there are probably some numerologists in here, people who love the study of numbers in the Bible. And you know, just like the seven churches in the book of Revelation, here we have seven summary statements of the book of Acts. Luke is communicating something beyond what he's communicating. He's saying it is really important for the church to understand what's special and valuable and treasured within the church ministry. And it's out of those values that we ought to be making decisions. Think with me about the strategy. Well, that really is a business word, Pastor. I, I don't know that the church really should have a strategy. Well, the early church had a strategy. It was called Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, and they had a particular plan, and the book of Acts tells us how that whole strategy unfolded itself over the course of about 30 years of church history recorded in the book of Acts, and they went exactly as it describes in the eighth verse of the first chapter as the rest of the story is told. Did you know Jesus had a strategy? I was 30 years old and a pastor and had been a Christian for 20 years before I understood that Jesus spent most of his time on earth building and reproducing disciples and that there was a regular pattern and rhythm to how he did it. Now, most Baptist churches knew how to do that. As a matter of fact, many of the Baptist churches were built upon that model in the 30s and 40s in a post-World War II era. But by 1950, we were so successful that we exported our strategy responsibilities to one of our entities, and they began to produce programs. And now for 50 years, the church has produced programs. And you know what we've forgotten? We've forgotten what it was that Jesus did to effectively reproduce disciples. Let me describe it for you. Come and see, follow me, abide in me, and go and tell. Jesus would always invite people. Peter, James, John, come and see. At some point, after a few days had passed, he said what to them? Follow me. 
After that, he took them into the upper room and he took them deep into some really significant and robust thoughts. And he said, abide in me. And then at the Great Commission, he said, go and tell. You see, make no mistake, you can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and find that rhythm again and again and again in the passage. And where there are churches around the world that recover that discipleship model, that engagement of lostness model, that missionary mentality in the model, there is life and vibrancy in the church. Why? Because the Spirit of God abides there where the work of God is being done by the people of God. If I were you and sitting there on the pew, I would have said amen to that, but that's just me, okay? Amen? amen? So, what does the Bible say to us about the mission? Well, let's go to that particular passage. Look at what the Bible says. Verse 18, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, if we can get that passage reestablished in thousands of churches across America and around the world, there is no doubt in my mind that the mission of Jesus will flourish and the church will not only survive, but the church will thrive. But here's the challenge. It's that we start thinking about our own ministries and our own desires and our own ambitions and our own priorities. And you say, Pastor, are you sticking your finger in my eye? Or are you stepping on my toes? No, I'm not. I'm stepping on my toes and sticking my finger in my eye. Because it is easy for me to think that it ought to be about me. But we miss the point. Isn't that what Jesus does in the hyperbole that he uses in the Sermon on the Mount? When he says, when you look at something in the other's eye, the speck in the other's eye, you see a log. But I tell you, see the speck and look at the log in your own eye. What's he saying? Again, hyperbole. He's trying to help us realize, hey, I'm the bigger challenge. And that's what Paul would have that orientation as well, that, hey, I'm the bigger challenge. The apostle Paul would say, I'm the worst of sinners. And listen, whenever the church gets so focused upon itself that it loses sight of the charge and the challenge, it begins to be about us. And the reality is it's not intended to be about us. You know, I remember years ago, um, we were sitting in a seminary class, in a class on ecclesiology, on the ministry of the local church, and uh, it was asked of us, what is the mission of the church? And a lot of really great options were given. Hurting the helping. Uh, I'm sorry, I think I inversed that, didn't I? You know what I mean? Helping the hurting. Um, sending missionaries teaching the Bible. Man, that sounded pretty good to me. Hey, that's a good list. I think that's my list. But we went on blessing others. Some people got real passionate about moral causes, about worship services and styles, about doctrinal purity. And can I tell you, all of those things are important, but here's the thing that Jesus gives us a pattern for understanding again in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, he says, seek first 
first the kingdom of heaven, and then all these other things will be added to you. Can I tell you, in my own life, I had to live that out. I thought that I had to take a vow of poverty and a vow of celibacy, and I had to move to the other side of the world in order to serve Jesus Christ. And, and when I was being called to the ministry, I was dealing with my pastor about those things and my call to ministry, and I thought, I have to give up all of this. It wasn't that I had to give it all up. It was that I had to be willing to give it all up. And what I was amazed at, that when I was willing to give it all up and seek God first, God, you want me to go to Africa and live there? I will. You want me to be in South America? I'll go there. You want me to be behind the Iron Curtain? I'll go there. You want me to live with a focus in this season, with this approach? I will, God. But in the end, can I tell you, with the perspective of 40 years on the other side of it, Anything I thought I was giving up, the Lord multiplied not 30, 60, or 100-fold, but I would say, friend, he multiplied it 10,000-fold and beyond. You see, we sit oftentimes in fear of what we're going to have to surrender when it's in our surrender that we find what it is that we really want. Now, go to this passage with me. Now, I told you it'd be the longest introduction you've ever heard, and I'm just about ready to start preaching now, okay? So, think about this passage. This is the most prominent passage in the Matthew 28 version of the Great Commission of all of the five Great Commission passages. Did you know there were five Great Commission passages? If you want to write, write them down, just take some notes here. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. It's twice in Mark, Mark 13, 10, and Mark 16, 15 through 18, Luke 24, 44 through 49, John 20, verses 19 through 23, and then Acts 1-8. Let me say that again, Acts 1-8. Now, think about that. I mean, just notice what that means, that every gospel ends with the Great Commission. The Great Commission is given multiple times. Every gospel writer includes it in their account, and Luke builds the story of the church around the actual fulfillment of the Great Commission. Listen, church, make no mistake. We don't have to go and invent a mission for the church. Our mission has been assigned to us by the author and perfecter of our faith. The question is, how do we adopt that mission and express it in our context through the ministry of the church that we are a part of? And so there are three things that I think need to be unpacked to help you do that. Look in verses 16 through 18 and just notice a few things about these three declarations. And I'm pointing you to the notes in your sermon guide and worship guide today. Number one, that Jesus makes a great claim. Now, just look at those verses a little bit. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain. That's the first word that, that I take note of. Certainly importance about Galilee, the beginning of Jesus' ministry there, but to the mountain in Galilee. Now, I don't know about you, but I look at the Bible, and when I see in the Bible that something is taking place on the mountaintop, is it important or unimportant? Important. What happened on mountaintops? What happened in Exodus on a mountaintop, burning bush, Ten Commandments. I mean, just small things, you know. 
Jesus' ministry, what happened on mountaintops? The sermon on the? The Mount of Trans... Mount Calvary, where Jesus died. When Jesus returns, he's going to come to the Mount of? Olives. Good, you're a biblically literate congregation. I'm proud of you. Well done. Jesus, though, makes a great claim here, doesn't he? What is his claim? On this mountain, another place of significance, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, that's not a strange statement at this point because if you go back to John chapter 3 and in verse 35, you'll find from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he is making declaration that he is God that he is equivalent with the Father, that he has the authority and the position and the power of, of authority and position that has been given to him. And, and notice that the apostles at this point didn't bat an eye at it. What did they do? They proscuoed him. They worshipped him. Now, this is a really powerful worship. It's not like we had a moment ago, as wonderful as it was. You enjoy the music and Sense the Spirit of the Lord and all of the blessings. Do you, do, do you know what, what these apostles did? They prostrated themselves before the Lord. Proscuo, they laid themselves out before the Lord in an act of absolute hum humiliation and submission. And it was exactly that that John did when you get to Revelation chapter 1 and he sees the, the eternal glory of Jesus and Jesus is described with the fiery eyes and the sword that's a tongue and this great eternal picture of Jesus is given to us and John falls down as if dead before him. That's the way the apostles fell before Jesus, and they were not shocked at all by the authority that he claims. Now, here's a question. Do you see Jesus with that kind of authority over your life, over your family, over your future, over this church, over his work, and over his mission, he claims all authority. Jesus has this authority. And understand this, church, ours is not to go out and declare the authority of Jesus. Ours is to announce the message of the one who is already conquered and risen from the dead. There's none other like him. And that's why the Bible says we are simply heralds of the good news. Now, look at verse 19 and notice the second thing. He says here, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So here's the second great declaration that's given. He gives a great commission. This is the co-mission. This is the mission that Jesus is giving to us. Now, notice a couple of things. The main verb in this commission is to make disciples. That's the key thing that we are supposed to do. But there are three aspects to that disciple making. There is the as you are going. So busyness is not an excuse. If you say you're busy, good, then you're a better missionary because you're going more places, doing more things, and with more people. You ought to just naturally be carrying Jesus with you more if you're going more places. So it's not come to church and do the work of the ministry. No, it's go to the world and do the work of the mission that Christ has given to us. So the busier you are, the the better you are positioned 
to do the work that Christ has called us to do. And then the second piece of that is baptizing them. That's the entry point through the church. And it's a good place for us to be reminded that the church has created in our modern day many structures to facilitate activity, but the way we confess Christ is through baptism. Make no mistake, that is the confession of faith in Jesus Christ, is when we baptize someone as a follower of Jesus. And then finally notice this comprehensive statement, teaching them everything I have commanded. Can I tell you, that's where everything else falls. Usually, if you put one of those other things above the mission, it doesn't take long to pollute and lose the mission and forget the reason why we have crisis pregnancy centers or why we do student ministry or why we do some ministry within our church. But the church has to remember what the primary ministry is, which is making disciples, and that has to live above all else. Why? Because Jesus commanded his church that that is our mission. And so we teach all of these other things. We can't leave them out because it's a part of what he says. Dallas Willard calls it this, the great omission of the great commission, this teaching them everything that I've commanded. And do you know what falls under that teaching them everything that I've commanded? It is the transformation of your life and mine into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So if the goal of the church is to fulfill the great mission, the goal of Jesus in your life is that you would be like Jesus. Now, as tempting as it is to start preaching that message, I'll show restraint, pull myself back, and we'll look at point number three. Look at verse 20. And behold. Now, whenever the Bible says behold, we should stop and look. We should stop and listen. So as profound as verse 16 is, when it tells us all authority in heaven and earth has been given... I would say maybe just as profound, if not more profound, is the backside of the bookend of this great commission. He says, I am. Does that ring a bell for anybody? Cause you perk up a little bit, doesn't it? Because the declaration that God made to Moses in disclosing his name to him was that I am Yahweh. And Jesus here is making that same claim. Yahweh, I am with you always. There's no place you go. There's no challenge you face. There's no place you've been. There's no place you are. There's no place you will go where I will not be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will stick closer to you than in a brother. I will abide in you. I will give you my peace to the ends of the earth, to the ends of yourself. I will be with you. And the Bible says this is the mission that we are to rally around. And Jesus asked his church to make this the one big thing. Now, let me close this way by making three applications related to these three points. And it looks like if the screen I am looking at uh, is the one you're looking at, point three of Jesus making a great declaration about his comfort is that third biblical point I want to press. Now, let's get to those three applications. So, 
Let's make some applications specifically related to what we've just learned in the Bible. One about the um, nature of God and His authority, the one about the mission, and then one about His presence. Let's start with the idea of His authority. Number one, if you want to remain on mission as a church, I think one of the points that is pressed in all of Scripture especially when there are disorienting things that are occurring in us, in our sphere of influence, or in the larger culture, is that getting our eyes on a high and holy God is really important. That if you want to remain on mission, you have to see God as a high and holy God. It was A.W. Tozer that said it this way, what comes to mind when you think of God will be the most important thing that you ever think about. No person has ever risen above what they have thought about when they think about God, nor has a people arisen above what they think about when they think about God. I would say that's absolutely true. Take Uzziah, for example. Sixty years of peace, and then he dies. Isaiah is disturbed and troubled because the saber rattling of all the armaments and the military and the kings of the earth clamoring What's going to become of us? And yet he goes into the temple, and what does he see? Nothing less than the, the glory of God coming down. And, and in all of his trouble, he comes, but when he's there, he gets his eyes on the Lord. And this high and holy view of God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That declaration is made. The train of his robe is filling his symbol. But make no mistake about what he saw when he was there, church. He saw Jesus. That's what John 12, 41 tells us. He looked upon the pre-incarnate glory of Jesus. And that's the Jesus that we get to look at when we come and worship him. And every time we enter into this worship center, every time we come to God, it doesn't matter if we're the oldest of saints with the greatest of knowledge or the youngest of children with a fresh relationship with Jesus Christ, we should all see the greatness and the goodness of God. As a matter of fact, it comes to mind that wonderful little prayer. You probably prayed it with your children or your grandchildren. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Anybody ever prayed that prayer before? More than half of you in the room, so you know what I'm talking about. Can I tell you, that's one of the greatest declarations of a theological framework that you could ever give to a child. God is great. God is good. God is gracious. You have the very framework upon which Isaiah built his thoughts. Here's a second truth I'll share with you, that God is good, and He is a loving and kind God. He is a loving and kind God. He is merciful as a God. What a beautiful thing the Bible teaches us. Here's the second application point. To remain on mission, you must commit to make mature and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ. To be on mission as a church. If you're going to be on Jesus' mission, then you, you've got to make, think evangelism, mature, think discipleship, and multiply, think missions. Part of what we do is help churches determine how they're going to facilitate that. Just like Jesus, come and see, follow me, abide in me, go and tell. Here we have the make and mature and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ. How do you do that for the next generation? How do you do that for an unbeliever? How do you do that so transformation takes place in individual church members' lives? You see, apart from that, we can't carry the gospel and do the work of the ministry that God has called us to do. 
And then, of course, finally, we need to think about this. To remain on mission, we must seek the presence of the Lord. We must seek the Lord's presence and his blessing. You know, the Bible says it this way in the book of Exodus. If your presence will not go with us, then Lord, don't send us. You see, you don't want to go somewhere where the Lord isn't taking you or isn't carrying you. It's part of the reason why in our ministry, we never try to tell a church what they should do. We never try to tell a church, this is the framework you should follow. We simply point them to Scripture and provide them resources as a self-governing church for this is the direction we believe we need to go. And then the church can rally around it and move that direction as it fulfills its mission and becomes a steward responsible for that mission before the Lord. Let me close with a couple of stories if I can. Let me personalize it first. My wife will remember Howard in our first church who had the coffee pot in the church. They just make you smile, won't it? Howard was a great big fellow who physically couldn't do a lot because he had a degenerative disease and he was kind of bent over and always on his cane and had a, had a big heart, not just a big stature. But... Um, one day, a real sweet, godly man in our church who was responsible as a layman for our Sunday school ministry um, went to Howard and said, Howard, we've got one of our young adult classes that's really growing. We'd like to take you out of room one and put you in room two. It's, it's the same. It's just that this will give them room to grow. And they are growing. And, and it became more of a conflict than you would ever have imagined. So Gary picked up the phone and called me and said, hey, there, there may be a challenge. And I thought, well, okay, I'll talk to Howard on Sunday morning. We'll see how it goes. Well, I get to church, and I go down to where Howard's class is, and there's no Howard. I went down to the fellowship area, and the coffee pot was gone. And it was kind of a big stir. You know, church people like coffee on Sunday morning, right? And so there was no coffee, and it was a big stir. And somebody said in the corner, well, Howard took the coffee pot. And so I was all of a sudden going, okay, this is a bigger deal than I ever realized, moving one class down for space, and the coffee pot's gone, and I was like, wow. But can I tell you something? It lay at the very heart of that small little church fulfilling God's mission. It lay at the very heart of it. I was told and had already learned a painful lesson as a pastor to not just go immediately and solve everybody's problems for them. My job was not to be the buffer between things, but my job was to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry as they fulfilled the mission of the local church. So I gave the Lord about four days to work, and on Thursday I pulled up in Howard's driveway. And Howard was out there struggling physically to get in his car. And I, I met him and started talking to him. And he told me about the conflict that he and Gary had had and why he wasn't there on Sunday. And he laughed and said, yeah, Pastor, I did. It was really childish. I took the coffee pot and went home. It was the equivalent of a child taking their ball and going home, wasn't it? But that's what he did. And through his tears that day, Howard understood that he had made it about him that it was a whole lot bigger than him. Fred, it's a lot bigger than me. It's a lot bigger than you. 
It's a lot bigger than just one church. It's the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ being impacting the world through all of his churches. It's a really important thing for every church to get it right. Let me tell you one other story, just ever so briefly, just to, to invite you into the thoughts and consideration of how big and how valuable and how eternal this work is. H have you ever heard of Ronald Wayne? He worked in 1976 with two Steves on an experiment. Ronald had been involved in the slot machine industry in Las Vegas, had lost a lot of money and spent about two years paying it back after his business went belly up. And, and so he was a little skittish, but he was really a brilliant businessman, especially with some of these electronic things that were beginning to become um, onto the scene. And so there were these two Steves, a guy named Steve Jobs and a guy named Steve Wozniak, who invited them into a third partnership for this little small experimental company called Apple. And he was given a 10% stake in the company, which two weeks into the venture, he sold for $800. Later, they went back to him and paid him another $1,500 and made him sign a claim to forfeit all of the future profit that might be derived from Apple. Listen, if he had held on to his stock, it would have been worth over $100 billion today. But he couldn't see it. He'd been hurt. He was disenfranchised. And so he set it out on the side. Do you know that later in life, he actually sold the contract freeing him from his obligations to Apple for $1.6 million just as a historical keepsake? I mean, that's mind-boggling. But can I tell you, church, if you could peer behind the curtain of heaven and if you could see eternity and the, the lost souls being saved and the hope of Jesus in the hearts of people, it would 10,000 times more boggle your mind the beauty and the glory and the joy of what Jesus has invited you into when he invited you and me into this mission. I invite you today, would you see his mission? Would you understand his authority to give you the call that he's given you, to send you out on the work that he's assigned to you? to recognize his presence will always go with you. Let me bow our heads. Let me ask you to bow our heads, and let's pray together as we close. I think we're going to close in song. Um, sorry I went a minute long there. I talked to Bill, the best-dressed usher in the church, and I said, Bill, what time do I need to stop? And he said, you can stop whenever you want to, but just know we don't pay time and a half. So, Bill, thank you for the extra minutes today, and um, let's get before the Lord for just a minute. Our Father in heaven, we hear your voice. I think somewhere in all of the message of the Great Commission, we hear your voice. As Bill Toler said to our seminary chapel that day, boys, it's important that you understand the mission before you leave here. And God, I, I think that's what you would say to the men and women of this 
church today, it's really important that they understand the nature of this mission. And Lord, that they personalize it. And so, God, I pray for Russell and his team and for the staff and their team and for the leaders of this church and teachers in this church that they would just deeply understand the mission. God, may we personalize the mission so that when we leave here, we realize we didn't come to church. Instead, we're really, if we're taking the Great Commission seriously, we're going to be the church to the world. And so, God, help us with that. If there are spiritual decisions that need to be made, Lord, I, I pray that your Spirit would counsel people in the way those need to be made. Encourage our hearts about your church, Lord. In this day and time, there's so much that discourages us and could easily disenfranchise and distract us. But God, encourage our hearts that the church is still your plan to share the gospel with the world. And may there be a renewed commitment to that. Lord, where there are some who need to join the mission and quit sitting on the sidelines, help them to know that and hear that call. For those who need the entry point to be baptized, may they confess Jesus as Savior and Lord. God, thank you for your message to us through Jesus' mission commission. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.